Welcome to the Commonweal Policy Podcast, episode number 28. I'm Jonathan Shaffey, the Commonweal Campaigns Officer. I'm delighted this week to be joined, as ever, by Craig DL, our Head of Research here at Commonweal. Hello, Hello. Craig, how are you getting on? I'm doing very well, thank you. And this week, too, to also be joined for our conversation with Elaine McKenna, who's a volunteer organiser with Commonweal. Elaine, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to have you here. We're looking forward to getting into quite a wide-ranging, wide-ranging discussion uh, about how we are taking things forward in multiple campaign fronts. Uh, Craig, I'm going to start with you because you had a particularly interesting weekend, didn't you, discussing one of the policies that we are going to be bringing out soon, the Green New Deal. Yes, I was invited by the Glasgow Greens to a conference um they held to to look at the the Green New Deal because there are a lot of groups now talking about this uh, this plan to decarbonise our planet uh, and in particular to decarbonise the economy of Scotland and even more locally the economy of Glasgow specifically they were very interested to see how the Green New Deal would affect them um, so they invited a variety of groups um, including the the main um, leadership from the the Scottish Greens who talked a bit about their upcoming. Green New Deal proposals, but they also uh, invited me to talk a little bit about our Commonweal proposals that we'll be launching very soon. Uh, don't worry, I didn't give away too many spoilers. Good, good, because we're going to be talking in this podcast about the, the launch that we're yeah. planning, and we're going to get into a bit more uh, discussion about the, the policy paper that's coming out. Uh, certainly, since I've started, it's the, the, the most ambitious and far-reaching uh, proposal that we put out, but I was speaking to Robin uh, earlier on, uh, and over the over the last number of weeks, and he says it's the biggest ever in Commonwealth history. I mean, you've been here with Commonwealth since the very start, and does that does that uh, resonate with you that this being the biggest piece of work yet? Yeah, I mean, the the only ones that are comparable really uh, are the projects like the How to Start a New Country, uh, our blueprint for setting up a, a new independent country, um, which we're, we're still um, selling copies of that book and it's still um, being talked about might become more important in the year to come if we get into another independence uh, campaign yeah the green new deal plan is bigger it hits far more areas in far more detail um, it has to because there's if you just think about it yeah in the in the how to start a new country we talked about all the things that scotland needs to do to set up a a new state that it isn't currently doing well with the Green New Deal plan we're looking at all those things that Scotland can't do because we're not independent but we're also looking at all the stuff that Scotland can start now before independence or regardless of independence has control over so yeah it's covering a much wider swathe of policy and yeah it's 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 going to be big it's going to be exciting I can't wait to share it with folk well, we're really looking forward to it, and uh, Elaine, it's been a very busy time too for the the volunteers, uh, the activists that are involved with uh, Commonweal. Uh, you've been at a number of events recently. I, I wondered though, just some reflections on that that massive demonstration before we get into events this weekend, because we had quite a big operation at that, didn't we? Oh yes, um, the demonstration. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, Absolutely. Um, what I'm encouraged by is I think there's something happening out there. I think uh, people generally are coming forward. They've had enough and have a lot of reasons for that. And I think a lot of the reasons for that will tie and dovetail neatly into this new policy paper that's coming out. Because if you've got an interest in housing, 
then the new paper will be for you um, and a whole range of other things that people maybe have been um, campaigning separately for, which is right, but actually coming together and see it as a total whole and certain the changes that we need to have. And what's great is we're seeing more people becoming active and involved, wanting to do things. Um, And that's always a good sign. Absolutely, and uh, I know this weekend um, that you and the Commonweal uh, team, the team of volunteers, were also along at the, the Radical Independence Conference, um, which we'll, we'll just touch on as yeah. well. Um, but your experience of the day, because I, I think that there is this sense that you've just reflected in your comments there, that, that there's a lot of people now wanting to get involved in the independence movement, and in particular uh, putting forward these ideas for kind of transforming the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how did you find the conference, and was Commonweal busy at the at the event? Yeah, we were. There was a constant flow of people um, coming and chatting and discussing. There was a few volunteers from Commonweal there, um, and it seemed it was constantly busy. So much so that I got to some of the main sessions, but had to stay put. And during the sort of breakout session so I was definitely getting a feel that people wanted to talk about actually doing stuff, getting more involved and the great thing about these events is it brings people together and I think the time is particularly urgent to be able to do that mm. it was positive and um, had a chance to reflect in some of the newspaper articles afterwards and uh, one of them was saying it was like a reawakening Um <clears throat> through that event um, and that, that's open to interpretation but I think having over 500 people on a Saturday spending all day there we certainly were busy in the stall had a, got a lot more contacts and people. so for me that's um, really important in terms of getting people involved and engaged and active yeah, yeah. I have to say, I'm a, I'm a bit gutted. I've been to every RIC conference since 2013. I was, in, I was invited to speak at this one. It was the first one I've been invited to speak at, and I couldn't go because it was the same day as the Glasgow Green one. I was double booked. <laughs> I mean, the conference itself um, was, I think, one of the, in my view, anyway, one of the best conferences that that RIC's held. And I say, I say, why? Because this was probably the most politically challenging. That if you look at the big RIC conference that were held, they were held in the context of a referendum or just after the mm-hmm. referendum where there's that huge surge of activity. So when you put on a conference like this, I was, I was helping to organise it, but when you put on a conference like this, you're not quite sure whether or not the uptake will be there, quite how the discussions will go. Yeah. Will it simply be a repeat of conferences gone by? And I think widely felt uh, in the conference and in the, 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 the various press articles that have been written after that people felt a couple of things. One, that the discussions were real. There was a real discussion about how we take forward the independence campaign, about the, the difficulties posed by things like the Growth Commission, for example. Um, there was a, a wide range of speakers who hadn't ever taken part in a, a, a conference before and it was unfortunate Craig that you couldn't speak but hopefully there'll be many other arenas in which Rick will be uh, helping to arrange people like yourself and yourself Elaine um, speaking at these events so so I think very good um, but of course all of this discussion whether it's the demonstration the Commonweal volunteers really coming on Rick the, the Glasgow Green uh, Party conference all of this now is being contextualised by a number of things, but not least a general election. Yeah. So I wanted to get your kind of initial thoughts on this. 
Um, I'll start with yourself, Craig. Uh, when the election was finally uh, called, what's your your first take? Ah, um, a somewhat mixture of uh, despair and just longing for things to be over, but with the knowledge that that's kind of what a lot of people want me to think. Mm-hmm. Um, th- those who, if people start withdrawing from politics, then what was it Plato said? If you withdraw from politics, you end up governed by your inferiors. Um, and there is somewhat of that sense tempering the whole thing. I know if I withdraw from politics right at this moment, then the people who still have a vested interest in controlling it will do so. And I don't think I like that future. So, yeah, we've got another general election. I hope it will result in a final conclusion to the Brexit impasse. Um one way or the other, however that ends up, because at least we can then fight a new fight if need be. Um, the, the the stalemate that we've been in for the last two years odd now is unsustainable. But do you think a general election will really solve the, the Brexit question? Um, yeah. I think that I've kind of tried to, to game this out and seen that, you know, there's a long way to go regardless of what happens with the question of Brexit. It seems yeah. to me that Brexit's now part and parcel of the kind of bloodstream of uh, UK politics. Really. It may move it on to a new phase. To a new phase, I mean, yeah. One possible scenario, and the, the scenario that Boris Johnson is obviously hoping for, is one in which he gets a majority government which would allow him to pass his deal, um, which is... He can't currently do because of opposition by, behind him, but more importantly, opposition from the DUP. If he can get rid of that, then he can pass his deal. He can achieve Brexit. But if he does that, mm. the UK then wakes up to the fact that it's going to have to spend the next decade or so sorting out the consequences of that. This is not a one-time get it over with, get Brexit done event, and then things carry on as normal. This is a new phase of British politics that will define the next generation of British politics in the way that other crisis events have have done in their time. Absolutely, and uh, Elaine, uh, the general election uh, now uh, all but underway. Um, what was your initial uh, feeling to to the to the idea that we're going now into a general election? The the most important general general election, mm-hmm. uh, and I know it's often said, but um, possibly the most important ever in modern times. I'd agree with that comment, and I also agree with Craig's comment about you know maybe you know this perception of let's get something settled. But either way, this general election is important, and it's important to get a result. And it's at a difficult time of the year, so there's this bit about getting people out to vote who are maybe feeling fatigued anyway yeah. about what's going on, and it ultimately gets down to uh, the onus is on us and people pulling together to get the best thing kind of outcomes we can. And coming back to your point about Rick, the fact that so many people were there and it was positive, there's something in this where we've really got to spell out what the opportunities are to keep engaged with the backcloth of the Westminster stuff going on for over three years and people being fatigued about it. And the outcome of this election will have a, a big um, impact on the future development of independence. I mean, should the Tories win uh, and the SNP do well, well, then the, the tension there and the constitutional 
question mm. will will expand even further to breaking point. Uh, should Jeremy Corbyn win, there's been overtures of Labour looking at some kind of deal uh, around a, a referendum and self-determination for Scotland. Not in the initial years of a, a Labour yeah. government, they've said, but, mm. but in the latter years. you get any strong views on this before I turn to, to Craig for his, <laughs> uh, his analysis of this? Uh, well, anyone who supports independence is really wanting to see movement on that in some kind of way. And in both those scenarios, I don't think the move for independence is going to go away. Um, again, it's people being able to rise up and stick with the challenge and thinking about, this is where Colin Wheel comes in, about the specifics mm. and the policies that's going to change things for the better for lots of people. And Craig, uh, do you agree with that? I mean, in terms of where do you see, we're going to talk through various aspects of yeah. the election, but in particular when it comes to independence, there are obviously a variety of outcomes we might have, but mm. what's your, your sense of how things might might develop in well, that question. If, if we're committed to the idea of independence via a Section 30 approved referendum, which I do agree is the best, most democratic option, then it's clear we're not going to get one from the Tories. But it's also not clear we will get one from Labour. Their official position is that they're not going to block it, but it wouldn't be a priority for the first years of the Parliament. Now, that may be a... a a sign that they are just going to get on with their initial phases of their manifesto, then look at what what other people are doing. It could even, more, more cynically, could simply be a, a, a an outright blocking tactic, delaying tactic, somewhat disguised. Because if you say, we're not going to give you a Section 30 for the first years, then we have a Scottish parliamentary election in 2021. So it's feasible you could be looking towards that and thinking, well, the SNP might not have a majority, there might not be a pro-Indy majority after that parliament, in which case we can say that there's no longer a mandate for that referendum and we don't need to give it. Now, turning to how we think this election will shape up in terms of the big debates, the big arguments, I, uh, I have a suspicion that Jeremy Corbyn's Labour, and here I'm talking about in England, we, we understand that there are distinct political entities now, yeah. Scotland and England. But I think in England that um, it's uh, very possible that Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party, with their 500,000 activists, may have been written off a little too early uh, when it comes to people's predictions about how this election might go. I think the Tories are deeply unpopular in many ways. There's a, a long number of years now of austerity. There's a real sense in which the society needs rebalanced and so on and so forth. So some of the big debates that are going to come up there, let's have a look at some of them. You saw it in Prime Minister's questions over recent weeks and, and you see it comes th- come through now in, in what's been put out from the political party. So, so Labour and Corbyn, they're basically putting forward this uh, vision for an alternative to what we understand neoliberalism to be. Yep. Now, we can get into the policy detail of that, but that's their broad pitch, that privatisation uh, shouldn't be some kind of panacea, that, that key industries must be taken under public control, but much wider than that. It's worth saying that UK, one of UK Labour's um, foundational policies, uh, a network of national investment banks, came straight from Commonwealth. It came straight from Commonwealth, that's absolutely right. And the Tories, on the other hand, Boris Johnson... They're talking about the wealth creators, defending the wealth creators and defending, effectively, having to defend 
the way the system is presently constructed. Now, what I'm going to put to you both is that I think that is in and of itself a serious development. It's been a long time in which there's been a general election where the nature of the system itself has been under real debate and scrutiny. And I think this is something that the Tories struggle with. They've been in such a hegemonic position, uh, even under New Labour, when the Tories aren't formally in power. But they've been under, their system has been so hegemonic. Their way of doing politics has been so dominant that for there to be any kind of challenge to that, I think, ruffles them in quite an uncomfortable way. And I just put that to you both. How do you think this is going to play out? And we're going to start with England, first of all. Yeah. I'll start with you, Elaine. Mm. Have you got a sense of things? Mm. Likewise, as we described about what's going on in Scotland in terms of people engaging and getting involved proactively and positively, I think a similar thing can be said in some parts of England and in the way that you've described in terms of uh, 500,000 activists where there hadn't been any. So we need to keep an eye on that and look at that. And as for the other side, having grown up in the 80s <laughs> and yeah. been through this kind of scenario before, okay, different times, different set of circumstances and specifics, but it remains the same in terms of what kind of future do we want? What kind of society do we want which actually involves and has positive outcomes for everyone in society? So there's some parallel uh, discussions to be had there and you're um, right in terms of the focus on you know, the state and how that is, that there needs to be a complete <laughs> unthinking yeah. of the kind of neoliberalism approach and uh, you know contracting, commissioning out of services to what do people need? Exactly, I think that's uh, I think that's really what this this discussion is mm. going to come down to. An election, Craig. Yeah. What What's your view and your feeling about England? If we start there, England and the rest um, of the UK. I mean, I, I, I kind of agree with all of Elaine's points there. Uh, my slum, somewhat scepticism uh, comes just simply in I'm not quite sure that the the voting landscape is quite caught up to that yet. Um, my kind of central prediction at this moment, hesitate to even call it prediction doing electoral poll predictions these days is a risky business. I do see the real possibility of the um, the election resulting in another hung parliament with neither mm. the Tories nor mm. Labour able to govern on their own. And the way the, the, the tensions are in the UK, in UK politics now, it's becoming increasingly difficult to see where stable coalitions could come from. Absolutely. So... Um, I especially fear, with Brexit, especially know? with Brexit, yeah. especially with Brexit. Um, so and with Scottish independence, because the the idea that you have this block of possibly somewhere in the region of the high forties, fifties, dare we say it, maybe even back up at the fifty six level of SNPs, uh, MPs. That's a a solid block of votes there for a for a coalition, but I don't. You know, the, the Westminster parties are going to be very reluctant to take it. The Tories certainly won't. And Labour are saying they won't. Whether that survives past the electoral horizon is worth waiting and seeing. Um, but we could end up with, again, more kind of stalemate and turmoil. And I think then that's a kind of good place to turn to Scotland yeah. uh, just before we do. So I think that 
Uh, I think this election is going to be very interesting. I think there's lots that's going to be discussed. And, and I just think, I have, a, I have a feeling that the whole nature of politics changes when a general election is called. Everyone then has to become a bit more disciplined about what they're doing. The messages become sharpened. Um, I think Jeremy Corbyn, his performance at PMQs already shows him to be much more at ease with himself. I think he prefers to be in the middle of a campaign. I'm not quite so sure that's the same for Boris Johnson, but time will tell. Yeah. Scotland, though, and I'll start here uh, with you, Craig. Well, what we have in Scotland is, I think, the expectation that given Brexit, given uh, the, the impact of, of Tory uh, rule in Scotland, the SNP must be going into this feeling pretty confident. They'll be going in fairly confident. They'll be looking at the polls, which are most of them are predicting an increase in uh, their numbers, and any increase would result in them having the second highest number of MPs that they've ever ever had in their history. They currently occupy that position. It's kind of, it's not quite the same position as they were in uh, 2017, where they couldn't really go any higher, and it was all downhill from there. So even going from the best performance to the second best performance felt like a loss. Yeah, they do have space to improve now. However. It has been pointed out that Scotland is now a nation of marginals. There are very, very few seats in Scotland, literally two or three, that you would consider a safe seat in UK political terms. Uh, there are MPs hanging on by less than 500 votes all over the place. There are seats where there are three-way marginals, where you know lab, uh, the SNP, Labour, and Conservatives are all polling something like twenty five, twenty six percent. So who knows, you know, where that will land uh, when it comes through. So we can probably give a a decent idea that the map of Scotland will stay very yellow post the, the election. But where that lands on each individual seat, that's going to be where the fun is. And Elaine, you talk to a lot of people mm -hmm. involved in grassroots politics and uh, and the like. Um, and I guess that there's going to be this tension to at least some degree where people see on the one hand, they see this, this idea of a reforming Labour Party, something that we didn't expect to see emerge in 2014, for example. But we also see this real mood develop around independence as a result of Brexit and also as a result of this language that we're seeing coming from the SNP talking about a referendum in 2020. Where do you think people are sit, sit with this kind of dilemma? I mean, do you think that the SNP is on for a really big showing at this election, for example? Looking at some of the kind of headlines and what's been said going about, that's an assumption. But as Craig has rightly said, I think we need to exercise caution around making those assumptions. In terms of the grassroots side of things, I always say, it's about holding these guys to account, isn't it? Regardless of what political party they're standing for. Mm -hmm. So for the people on the ground, it is about rising up in terms of what they want, in terms of being a better country in the Scottish context, whether it's the Scottish context within the UK or the potential of Scotland um, in Europe, and the internationalist kind of perspective from it, which maybe feels very different to some of the debates that are going on up and down the UK. Um, so I, I still think there's a bit of caution. 
Um, there's things that are hopeful. You need to be hopeful, but people need to get active and remain engaged. Absolutely. I want to now turn to the SNP positioning mm-hmm. on this. There's been some debate in and around the party about just how to uh, position uh, the SNP when it comes to this election. We've seen a lot over the last three years, and it's been a source of some consternation, of the SNP uh, effectively becoming a party of stop Brexit, um, where that seems to have been the kind of priority message that they've been trying to get out there. That, I detect, is slightly changing. Yeah. I think possibly changing under the weight of grassroots pressure, who want to see far more of the prioritising of a second referendum on independence, a Section 30 independence writ large. How do you think they're going to to work this out, Craig? Where do you see them positioning themselves in this election? Well, they have said that this time around, uh, independence will be at the heart of their campaign. Mm. Um, and there is the received wisdom that the, the, the seats they lost in 2017 um, was largely due to loss of turnout among their, their activists and their base because they weren't looking at independence uh, as much as they were Brexit. Um, this is one to judge when the manifestos come out um, and maybe once we start to see the polls um, in, the, in the days and weeks leading up to the election. Um, the it would generally be considered a bad idea to fight the last campaign this time round, mm. simply because it didn't work work that well last time. Mm. So I do expect to see a change from them. Um, how forthright they precisely are on independence and how much Brexit fades into the background because uh, remains to be seen. I did hear a, a good interview this morning on the radio where... Um, the SNP representative was was challenged quite robustly, um, saying that you keep mentioning independence, but for the last several years you've been essentially putting the UK at, uh, first. Uh, will that continue? Are you now abandoning the U- the rest of the UK to Brexit? And the answer to that particular question was a denial of sorts. So. Is it a, an abandonment of uh, the rest of the UK to let them go and have the Brexit they obviously want while Scotland pushes for independence? So, or is that or, or is that simply the democratic settlement that, that we come to? I mean, yeah. this is what's up for grabs. Okay, Elaine, uh, just last few minutes of this podcast, I want to dedicate to the launch that we'll be hosting uh, here at Commonweal, the launch of our Green New Deal plan. And there's things that we can't say about it, uh, and uh, those are uh, going to be kept under wraps until until we launch. This is where the policy guy is not allowed to speak. <laughs> so I'll come to you first, Elaine. Uh, we're gearing up for this event in the Arches, um, uh, not this Saturday, but next. Uh, and we are going to be um, packing the Arches out so we can launch this this policy paper. Look, just give us a, an impression of, of where volunteers are with this, because I think this is quite exciting for people. It brings both all of the, the climate change challenges together with independence and with economic justice as well. So quite an overarching policy. Exactly. And <clears throat> let's hold that thought, because I think most people that are very active and interested in common weal are interested in social justice. 
And with that, that includes environmental justice and a whole range of things. So a lot of activists on the ground know what the conditions are like within their communities, where they live and beyond. So within that, I think it will be interesting to see, OK, under the auspices of the Green New Deal, that uh, we know this document will have chapters so there'll be something in there with for anyone with an interest in any particular thing to yeah. maybe look at. And that ties in, I think, uh, with the potential to broaden thinking because we absolutely need people to look at what they're passionate about, the kind of change they want to see, be able to see it in an overall context. And I'm a way often thinking of all the collaboration that we can be doing, have been doing and can continue to do with various campaigns around which could actually bring a bit of unity within all this, although it's very specific. Mm. It could actually help. The idea of having a plan that people can maybe follow, discuss, Mm. debate and then develop uh, the areas of interest. And again, it comes down to, right, what kind of social and economic justice do we want to see? This is a good point. I hadn't actually thought about this uh, in that way before. But yeah, the Green New Deal is going to be so transformative to society that a lot of organisations who are currently campaigning on their own issues are going to have to start looking at what their issue changes into in a Green New Deal world. Um, Just off the top of my head, because we've been working closely with folk like Get Glasgow Moving, you know, the Green New Deal is going to overhaul our transport industry. It's going to overhaul our public transport industry in particular. So campaigns like Get Glasgow Moving, um, I'm not uh, singling them out particularly. Other transport uh, campaigns are available. But how does their campaign how is their campaign affected by Green New Deal? Is it affected in a positive way? Does it help them? Is it affected in a negative in a negative way? Does it make their job harder? Uh, I hope it's the former rather than the latter. How can all of these organisations come under that banner and all start campaigning on their specific area within that umbrella of the Green New Deal? Mm. Absolutely. Uh, I think that actually might be a great place just to, to bring this to a conclusion and to an end. The event itself in the arches will have music, will have speeches, there's going to be lots going on the 9th of November. Saturday the 9th of November in the arches in Glasgow. Tickets are available. I'll put a link in the description. We also have links on social media and on our website. It'll be well advertised. Come along, it'll be a ball. So make sure you do come along to that. We're looking forward to seeing as many of you uh, that are listening uh, there as possible. Um, and uh, with that, I'd like to just say thank you to Elaine McKenna for um, some great uh, input today. And as, as always to yourself, Craig, as well. We've covered quite a range of issues. And I'll end the same way I always do, that this whole operation, whether it's the volunteers, the policy, this podcast, the launch that we're doing, everything is run on a shoestring budget and is very kindly run as a result of your donations. That's the only uh, funding source that we have. So please do uh, give us some money if you can. uh, Donate on a monthly basis if you can. Every single penny gets put towards building an independent Scotland with a truly transformed economy and society that puts all of us first. <laughs>